So God, we thank you for that this morning. We pray that you would use your word uh, to speak to us today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Go ahead, if you have a copy of the scriptures, and uh, open them to Mark, uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Mark, chapter 13. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there should be one uh, provided in front of you. Mark, chapter 13, we'll begin with verse 14. Just a minute. We have a task together as a church over the coming year, and that is... Uh, to instruct our children on the practical benefits of a one-hour time change. Don't know about you, but mine missed that. Um, The adults caught the warning, the children did not. So if you can help with anyone under 10 to instruct them before next year of the benefits of that extra hour of sleep, hope you are rested and ready uh, to meet with the Lord this morning. Uh, As you can tell, uh, we'll celebrate communion Uh, Take the Lord's Supper together as a church as we finish, so uh, pray that would perk your heart with anticipation uh, as we sit under the teaching of the Scriptures. We have much to celebrate this morning. Uh, We'll do that uh, today, and then coming back uh, together tonight, we have a family meeting here in this room at 5.30 tonight, followed by some ice cream in the gym, uh, to celebrate the fact that today, this Sunday, uh, marks one year of TCC's existence. It is... uh, Hard to believe that this Sunday a year ago was the Sunday that we uh, officially joined together as a new church family. Up until that point, uh, some of us were meeting in Mitchell Road Elementary School with a nice horse mural on the back wall. Don't know if you remember that. Setting up and taking down chairs uh, every week. Uh, Some of you had just undergone a transition from Buncombe Road to this new facility and kind of getting your sea legs here in this place, and in the Lord's kindness, he chose to put us together uh, as one new family, the church at Cherrydale. And shortly thereafter, being able to send out a group of about 30 of our members to start the church at Greer Station. So it has been a full year, and uh, I want to, as one small representative of the leadership, say thank you uh, for your kindness to make this change happen Uh, If you've ever done any pastoral counseling or counseling of uh, any degree, you know that one of the greatest challenges faced by adults is the task of blending families. I did uh, marriage counseling for about six months, and consistently, couple after couple after couple, faced with the daunting challenge of, through death or divorce, blending together two families that had once been separated. Those changes Uh, could be small matters, like we used to do dinner time at this time, and now we do it at this time, Uh, to really big changes. But putting together a group of, let's say, five people who have distinctly different histories under the same roof poses a great challenge, not to mention putting together a few hundred people in the same building. Uh, You know that this could have gone quite chaotically, And it did not, by God's grace. Uh, I get phone calls uh, weekly 
on other churches using us as a case study for how this can be replicated in other places. This past week in Greenville, North Carolina, a buddy called uh, trying to figure out how to put together an existing church plant with an existing congregation in the city and seeking our counsel. And one of the things that I have the joy of saying every time is, apart from God's grace and the humble willingness of our people, this would have been impossible. Like, there's, no, there's no amount of like leadership savvy that makes things like this happen. You guys have just been so gracious, and we are, we are incredibly thankful for that. We know that for all of us, preferences have had to be laid aside to make things like this happen. And so we are, we're just overjoyed with thanks for you hanging in there with us for the sake of the better, better good and the work of the mission in the city. So, so thank you. Tonight, we'll say thanks with some ice cream. Or actually, you will say thanks to one another with really good ice cream, all right? Uh, tonight, so back in here at 530, uh, that will be a joy for us. This um, idea, this family language that we've seen through Tracy's highlighting of this Sunday being Orphan Sunday and even uh, our One New Family as TCC provides a really good um, introduction for our text this week. Two places I uh, want to direct your attention that might serve as, as hooks or central thesis for the, for the text that we'll have uh, this morning. Verse 20 of Mark chapter 13, and then a bit later in verse 27, we are in the middle of what is a very dense forest, and it will be incredibly easy for us this morning to get lost in the forest, to get lost in the trees. What I want to do is try to pull our eyes up so we can see at a 30,000 foot glance what Jesus is pointing to in these instructions as he paints a picture of what is to come in the future. Twice he says in verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then a bit later in verse 27, similar theme. He will, so looking into the future, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So God's central purpose, Jesus painting a picture of what is to come, is going to be God's mission to gather his family, his elect together. God is on mission to gather a people, and those who are part of his family will live in shalom and peace the way he originally intended. And we've seen that this gathering process is going to happen in stages. Last week we looked at this end of age number one. That culminates in the temple and all its trappings. And Jesus has said this age is coming to a close. And he gives the original hearers some signs that would show that this age is about to end. But he also, throughout this text, alludes to the fact that there is coming an end to age number two. An end to all of the age. And Jesus' words in this chapter are really challenging to understand because at times it appears that he's speaking about the near future, and at times he's speaking about the far future. And often those 
intermingle in ways that are really challenging for our brains to get around. But we've clearly seen up to this point that he's speaking of a number of things that would happen in the, in the near future, the fall of the temple age. And then in verse 14, he begins, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, parenthetically, let, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter the house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, then no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I've told you these things beforehand. So this is in one massive chunk, something that Jesus has already alluded to that would mark the culmination of the end of age number one. This false prophets, false teachers that would stand saying, I am the Christ. Specifically here, he uses an allusion from the book of Daniel that speaks of one standing in God's place, an enemy of God standing in the place of worship to God. Matthew makes it clear that this is a reference to the book of Daniel and discussing the same text in Matthew 24, 15 through 16. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and again he says, let the reader understand, then that let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Luke makes it clear that this picture is specifically speaking of the near future, He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that the desolation has come near. So there would be one, Jesus is painting, in the future that would come, who would be an enemy of God, who would stand in the place of God. And this is something that the prophet Daniel foresaw. It is clear that this fulfillment occurs in stages. We see even before the time of Christ, In 167 B.C., so a couple hundred years or so before the time of Christ, a Greek ruler named Zeus sets up an altar and offers burnt offerings in the Jewish temple. He goes so far as to offer sacrifice of a pig on the Jewish altar. You can imagine how that goes over, right? Not well. Not what you're supposed to do there. Then in A.D. 70, so looking out into the future, Roman legions set up stand on the old temple site. They erect a temple to Zeus, and there a Roman leader enters the Holy of Holy, removes the various items, and leads them through his victory procession. He says, there is one who is going to come, who is going to stand in the place of worship, who is an enemy of God. And when this happens, run. This is his encouragement. This would seem foolish counsel if we're talking about the far future. Because at that point, there's going to be no place to run. But here, he says, when this happens, when you see these signs coming, run. 
No need to gather your cloaks. You don't want to be pregnant. Hope it doesn't happen in the winter because that would make travel difficult. So get out. But he tells them that these days are going to be shortened so that some will be saved, some of the elect will be spared. But then in verse 24, But then, in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. So in verse 24, we have some type of transition. But in the future, some future time, after this time of tribulation or oppression or persecution, then the Lord will return. And this time his return, note in the text, is going to be marked with great power and great glory. This is quite a contrast from the first coming of Christ. Here he will be marked as a suffering servant, born in a manger, obscure and desolate. But when he returns, he will return as a conquering king, rightly ruling and reigning over all that he has established. His second coming will be utterly unlike his first. It will happen at a different time, and yet it will have at its core the same purpose. Notice again verse 27. The purpose will be to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth. So this time, rather than simply the elect in Jerusalem who will be protected, who will be gathered out, who will be saved from this Roman opposition, this time he will gather out his elect from all the nations. His mission will be complete. There will be disciples amongst all the nations that he will call to himself because they are his. So some of you know that uh, Sarah and I just moved into a new neighborhood. And one of the unique things about our new neighborhood is it's loaded with young kids. We've never been in a neighborhood where there are so many young kids, next door neighbors, that our kids love to go, uh, go play with every afternoon. And so about 3.15 every afternoon, our doorbell rings, and it's one of the neighborhood kids, and they want to go play. Most of our yards don't have fences in them, so the back houses back up to ours and the neighbor's kids. And there's 10, 15 kids out running in the streets in the neighborhoods, going to the playground, doing all that. All right, so Sarah loves it, right? It's just like, it's great. I love it as well. They go and they play. And she's able to stay in and make dinner and get things ready. And about 6 o'clock, 6.15, you start to see the parents reappear. They step out on the deck and they yell, right? Corey, Avery, Hudson, dinner's ready. And so from the scattered kids, we call out those who belong to us to come to the dinner. Now, it would be awkward if 15 kids came running at that point, right? At that moment, what happens is those who are in your respective family are called to you for fellowship with the family. They know who belongs to whom, and we call them to ourselves. This is the nature of what we are told Christ will do when he returns. He will gather those that are his. 
John Calvin encourages us, the church, with this hope when he writes regarding this text. For though the church be now tormented by the malice of men, or even broken by the violence of billows, and miserably torn to pieces, so as to have no stability in the world, we ought always to cherish confident hope, because it will not be by human means, but by heavenly power, which will be far superior to every obstacle, that the Lord will gather his church. This is our hope. So why the delay? Why the delay between his first coming and his second coming? The gathering of the elect. We're told in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10, the central reason for this delay. In verse 8, the writer says, Don't overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. His desire in this space is to gather his people. His desire is that many would be saved. He is expressing to us in this interim period great patient kindness, willingly delaying so that his, those that are his would come to him, knowing that in a future day, the earth, and verse 10, all of its works will be exposed, will be laid bare. The language here isn't that the earth would be blown up, but rather that it would be purified, free from the contamination of sin. There's coming a day when that will happen. In the meantime, he is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, as long as it is today, you can turn to Christ and be saved. You can be a part of his family. In John 1, these are the opening phrases that highlight the ministry, the earthly ministry of Christ. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of flesh and blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This text highlights this contrast that God's people... The nation of Israel rejected him, and yet God grafted in these who were outsiders. God has an unlikely family tree. You and I, many of us, are a part of that unlikely family tree. Some of those that you would think were a part were not, and some of those that you would think were not were. 
God is gathering an unlikely people into his family while we wait. In verse 28, he points to our good lesson, the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. And also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So his words are supreme over all things. They will not pass away. And he holds up the good old fig tree to teach us a lesson. In a culture where most trees were evergreens, the fig tree is an exception. It loses, in the fall, it loses its leaves, and in the spring, the branches and the tree begin to leaf out. And so this, the parable serves as an antidote, antidote for us to despair. We need not lose heart. As we see these things coming, we would know that the end is near. He points to the fact that this generation will see an end of age number one. And as they see a culminating of this age, they will know that the end is, is near. The sign of the fig tree serves for us as an indication, not a clock. We would see these things happening, and they would alert us to the fact that the end is closer than we think. The end is at hand. Now, even the people for whom Jesus was writing these words had several steps removed from the end of age number two. The incarnation had already happened. Jesus was here. And yet they knew, some knew, Jesus certainly knew, that the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension stood between them and the end of age number two. There were still things that had to happen. But Jesus points to the fact that once these things happen, the end of the age is drawing close. The time is short. And in the same way, we live at a time when there are no other things, there are no other aspects of redemptive history that must transpire before the age closes. The incarnation's already happened, the crucifixion's already happened, the resurrection's already happened, the ascension's already happened. Jesus is gathering his people, and the end could happen at any time. This isn't a fear tactic for us, but an encouragement to us and an encouragement to these disciples who are about to watch the brutal murder of the one they had been following. In John 14, a great encouraging text that takes these passages of the end times out of fear-mongering and places them in the rightful position that I think Jesus intended them as an encouragement to his disciples and to us. Jesus says in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. A bit later in verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees nor knows him. You will know him, 
for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. This is his promise, that he as the father of his people would not abandon us, but he would gather us to himself. He promises to not leave us as orphans. This Sunday, as we remember Orphan Sunday, and as we think on the fatherless in our land, this provides us a great opportunity to reflect on the fact that God as Father has promised to not abandon his children. Those that are in his family, he will gather. That is the promise of this text. So, how should we then respond? Verse 32. But concerning that day, Or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but also the Father. But be on your guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. There's no real need to be a pastor to understand Jesus' intention with this passage. He says it over and over and over again. The point is that we would not attempt to meticulously calculate when he would return. In fact, it seems that he says, don't be concerned about the timing at all. He set the times and the dates by by his own authority. This language of the time at the end of verse 33 denotes this set appointed time that God created by his own authority. And not even the Son who willingly laid aside equality with God in his earthly ministry, not even the Son knows. But this future event is certain and fixed, though its timing is purposefully withheld. What do we know for sure? Here's what we know for sure. We know for sure that Jesus is coming to gather his church So we should be ready. This is the essence of this passage. Jesus is coming to gather his church, so we should be ready. For those of you who are on the outside of his church looking in, and by that I don't mean not a member of the local church, but you are not in Christ. You know that to use our picture earlier, if Jesus stepped on the back porch and called his people to himself, you are not in Christ. You are not a part of his family. Today is a grace gift of a loving God to you. You can this day turn from your sin and trust in Christ. You can call him your Abba Father today. That is what being ready means for you. It means that you pass on this Lord's Supper this morning and that you bow your knee in repentance, turning from sin and trusting in Christ. And we are told from John 1 that Jesus will lovingly accept you 
adopt you into his family. That is what being ready looks like for you. For those of us who are in Christ, we're told repeatedly over and over again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let's not sleep as the others do, but let us watch and be sober. This is what Jesus says over and over again in Mark 13. Stay awake, be on your guard, watch. Don't be weary Don't lose heart. We are, as God's people, to watch, expectantly watch, expectantly be ready for what could happen at any point. I think there's a great contrast here between the way that we watch. On the one hand, My concern is that often when these texts are talked about, or when we think about the end times, the language, the way we paint the picture of watching, is a watching or a waiting in fear. That's what I I mean by that. Um, Sarah and I have been married a couple of years, and we uh, had a gift to go to uh, Tennessee Mountains, to a mountain cabin. Family friend had a place there, and uh, when you're newlyweds, you use family friend perks, right? And uh, so we went and stayed in the mountain cabin with some friends of ours for the weekend, and we had just gotten there, and Sarah said she was going to go grocery shopping. Okay, so I stayed at the house getting everything set, set up, and Sarah went out to get groceries in the mountains in a place that we had never been. My wife um, is not the most prompt timely individual. So I always, she says I'm going to be back in 30 minutes. I always give her like two hours, all right? That's my consistent buffer. Double whatever time she says. So I'm set up. I'm watching. I'm doing, doing my deal, getting the kids set up. Two hours goes and nothing from Sarah. And uh, we both have cell phones and uh, I call her and the cell phone immediately goes to her voicemail. It doesn't ring at all. It just immediately goes to her voicemail. And something happens in me that's probably happened to you at some point. The anxiousness rises in you, right? I know she's gone out somewhere in the car. She has a cell phone, but she's in the mountains of Tennessee, so she has no reception. And I have absolutely no clue where she is. So 15 minutes turns to 30 minutes. Now, in that moment... I am waiting in fear. I am doing what parents do on prom night. I am waiting in fear for my kid to come home, knowing that something bad has likely happened. This crazy fear, this anxiousness that wells up in you, that hour turned to two hours, turned to three hours, and by God's grace... Some random stranger pulls up in our driveway. My wife has gotten GPS lost in the backwoods of Tennessee on some mountain dirt road and found some stranger who was gracious enough to bring her back to our house. She shows up at the door, tears in her eyes, frantic because she's been just as scared as I've been. In that moment, anxiously awaiting a return that you anticipate being something really bad happening, right? That is not the type of waiting Jesus encourages. We do not have to wait with that type 
of anxiety. The contrast of waiting in fear is watching in love. The picture I would have, I, I love. Uh, I hate going on trips, but I love coming home. With my little kids, know that daddy's getting ready to come home, and they wait up to greet me at the door, right? And there's this moment where they know daddy is going to stick to his promises. He said he was going to come back, and I come to the door, and they run and greet me because they have been watching in love. Not waiting in fear, but watching in love. This is the type of posture that we as the church can have as we think about the return of Christ. We can be wakeful, be confidently busy, knowing that God will always keep his promises. This waiting in love is why the second coming of Christ is the motivation for literally dozens of ethical behavioral exhortations in the New Testament. Because we know he's going to keep his promises, we should cast off darkness and pursue light, Romans 13. We should, Hebrews 10, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing close. Because we have confident assurance that God will keep his promises, we can get busy about his work now. This promise serves as steady encouragement that the family will be gathered. This family gathering is symbolized in our minds in many different ways, but one of the most significant of those is of a family meal. In Revelation 19, we're told that in the gathering of the family, when God steps on the back porch and gathers his children, we will celebrate together with a meal. In Revelation 19, 6, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with white linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This day that's coming when God will gather his people will be marked by a marriage supper feast that we, as the family of God, will share together. And as a picture of that coming day, and as a picture of the most central act of God to redeem, to gather his people, the finished work of Christ, he has left us a celebration. This celebration is specifically for his family, for those that know him, that are in Christ. Just one chapter later, a passage Hugh will teach on in a few weeks. He, right before his death, holds up bread and the cup, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He thereby institutes this meal where we would reflect and remember the sacrificial death of Christ, his body and blood that were broken and poured out to gather his people to redeem those of us who are dead in our trespasses and sins and adopt us into his family. Because we believe that this is a family meal, one of the ways, one of the most frequent ways we administer or take the Lord's Supper is to invite you to come with your family. This could be uh, those that uh, extended family that are in town visiting. It could be members of your small group. It could even be college roommates that are doing life together, connected relationally to one another. And because we are together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we celebrate this meal together. In just a minute, I'm going to pray, and the table will be open. There are three up front. We invite you to come with your family, with your friends that you're connected with here in the local church. And after having time to pray with those that you love, to take the bread and the juice as an act of remembrance that we eat now as a picture of our eating later when God faithfully has gathered his family together. Please take time to reverently confess your sins, pray where you're seated. If you're here and you don't know Christ, please heed my exhortation to refrain from the table, to pray, to come talk to one of the pastors. We'll be up front. We would love to talk to you about how you can know that you are in God's family. And for those of us that are, let us pray that this table would serve as a means that would encourage our hearts to be watchful, knowing that he could return at any point. Let's pray. Father, we trust that you will do what you say you will do, that you will gather your family to yourself. We recognize that our frail brains could get really bogged down in all the details of how that will happen. Pray that you would protect us from that. Pray that you would use your word to remind us that you are always true to your promises. You will gather your people. And the time is drawing near. So because of that, we pray that you would make us watchful, stir us from our slumber. Pray that you would use these tangible symbols, this bread and this cup, that we would be reminded of the gravity of the price that was paid for our sins that that would jar us from apathy, that it would make us watchful as we wait in love for the marriage supper when we who were orphans will gather with a feast with our Father. Pray that you would use your table to do that this morning. For Christ's sake, amen.